Hola, so. so. I would like to give a bit of a preamble here so I can use fewer words during the meditation itself so we can just have more time not to multitask but just to meditate. So the preamble would be to come back today, this afternoon, to the meditative cultivation of compassion. And what I'd like to do is, in terms of themes, uh, points of focus, would be to focus once again on the three levels of suffering. The blatant suffering, suffering of change, and then the ubiquitous suffering of conditioned existence. And when we reflect upon these for ourselves and arouse the yearning for freedom, then this gives rise to this spirit of emergence, or what is often translated as renunciation, the yearning for liberation, which is individual and authentic. And then when we extend the same type of awareness and arouse the same yearning for others, then we call that compassion. So it's really the same thing, extent, applied to self and then others, renunciation and then compassion, outwardly. And so if we should relate these three levels of suffering, the dungake dunga, gyobe dunga, kapaducheke dunga, these three modes of suffering, the blatant suffering, I think in a very rough kind of way, with no one-on-one correspondence, but in a rough kind of way can be related pretty strongly to one of the three poisons, and that is anger. Anger, hostility, aggression, hatred. Because this, 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 that range of mental afflictions always arises out of some type of displeasure. Nobody gets so happy that they get really angry as a result. So it comes out of displeasure and really of, of two things. We get something we don't want for ourselves or somebody else, or we don't get something we do want. It's pretty much, that's it. One of those two, and it gives rise to displeasure. It may just simmer as displeasure, just I don't like it, or like, like, a, smoldering, like a smoldering twig. It may just sit there and smolder and I don't like it, I don't like it, this is unpleasant, or it may burst into flame and then arise as hostility, aggression, and so forth. But its source is unpleasant, and I think some people do, in some kind of a strange kind of way, enjoy being angry. I don't think I've ever enjoyed being angry. It's always been unpleasant, every single time. The expression is unpleasant, even though it's kind of a release of energy. If, I, you know, if one uses harsh words or whatever, there's a bit of... But it's, I, just, I know what pleasure is like, and that's just not it. You know, and so obviously not all blatant, suf- blatant suffering is, how do you say, triggered by anger. That's clearly not true, but there is an awful lot of suffering in the world that is generated by anger and the resultant behavior. So those those kind of go together. And as we are arouse the the aspiration to be free for ourselves, for others, then we can imagine, we can aspire that that mental affliction dissolves back into its source, which in terms of the substrate without going to primordial wisdom, back in the substrate corresponds to what? what? Which one of the three qualities of the substrate consciousness? Luminosity, yeah. Because we know there's something very bright, something very sharp and shiny about anger. It's really, it, it's, it's got a spark to it. Well, take out the afflicted, t- detoxify it. Detoxify it and just let it be pure luminosity. Now, when we go to the second and more subtle level of suffering of enormous import and often not even regarded as suffering but regarded as pleasure, and that is the suffering of change, this is clearly, this is strongly related to the mental affliction of attachment. Craving that which we don't have with clinging and grasping, holding onto that which we do have, which we want. So that's a strong correlation. And we go to, when we go to this deepest level of suffering, which the, the fundamental vulnerability to suffering, this is clearly related to the third poison, delusion. Right? It is that grasping onto 
these, our own aggregates, the body-mind as mine, it's grasping onto oneself, the self-grasping, and it is exactly that which, is, which makes us vulnerable <clears throat> to all types of suffering. So when attachment, in terms of the substrate consciousness, when that dissolves, what quality, do, and it becomes detoxified. It's really a detoxification process. So Angela, you've got a big smile on your face. What happens to attachment when it gets detoxified and dissolves back into the substrate consciousness? Bliss, yes. <laughs> yeah. Because there's something really quite blissful about desiring something. There's something a little bit kind of like, like it about craving. If I haven't gotten it yet, I think maybe I'll get it, and I'd really like that. If I've already got it, I'm happy, I want to hold on. There's something kind of happy about craving. That's why we do it so much, right? And then there's that deepest level, <clears throat> which clearly is related to ignorance and delusion, and that is related then, obviously, by a process of elimination. Michelle, to which quality in the substrate consciousness? Non-conceptuality, non yeah. Non-conceptuality which then just slips into serenity, into peace, into quiet, stillness, which, when it's clouded with delusion, is called a vegetative state, or brain dead, right? which is pretty ignorant. But when it's conjoined with luminosity and bliss, there's nothing brain dead about it, except for you may actually be dead in which your brain is dead, but your consciousness isn't. And if you die lucidly, then of course you can really enjoy that. Did I tell you, by the way, I did, I think I, maybe I mentioned that when I double-checked uh, the Vajra Essence, this classic text, did comment, I think I did mention it, that when you, when you, when you come into the substrate or this, this dark near attainment, the, the final point of the dying process, that, that can, you, you may remain there for six hours, a day, two days, even three days. Even three days. I think I mentioned it afterwards, didn't I? Yeah. That's quite interesting because that's before the clear light of death. And he comments, and I don't think I told you this, that... Um, if you'd like to know how long you, you, the chances are that you could stay in the clear light of death beyond the substrate consciousness, when the substrate consciousness dissolves into the clear light of death, into primordial consciousness, how long will you be able to sustain that, which is profoundly purifying, unlike just dwelling in the substrate consciousness? And what Dujun Lingba said is if you've already, in, while you're well and healthy, healthy and well, if you've been able to ascertain Rikpa, pristine awareness, and if you've been able to sustain that, that awareness for like a whole day, then you can spend like a week. <laughs> it's like you have a voucher. <laughs> if you can remain in samadhi and meditative equipoise in Rikpa while you're, while you're alive and well for one day, that would translate over into being able to remain there for a week. Uh, and it kind, of, it kind of intuitively makes good sense because if your body's still rumbling and you have a digestive tract and you have environment and all of that business, then you've got a lot of stuff kind of gnawing away at or helping to erode your meditative equipoise while you're still, em still embodied, right? Um, whereas in this post-death experience of the clear light of death, there's just no erosion. There's nothing to pull you down. There's no body to pull you, no external distractions and so forth. So, how could you possibly, if you get a glimpse of Rikpa, how could you su possibly sustain that for a week? <clears throat> shamata, shamata, <laughs> shamata, shamata, shamata. <laughs> oh, Lasso, let's go back and practice, shall we? Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
that settle the body, the speech together with the respiration, and the mind and the natural states as we've done before. Now let's move into the more active phase of the meditative cultivation of compassion. Directing our awareness, first of all, to ourselves, moving out of the I-it relationship. I am such and such a person. I hate it when I do this. I hate myself after I've done that. These whole issues of self-contempt, low self-esteem, lack of self-worth, utterly harmful, detrimental. So attend to yourself as a sentient being and reflect, if you will, on those experiences from your own past in which the mental affliction of anger or hostility has descended upon your mind, caught you in its grip, has caused you to suffer, and perhaps caused other people, by way of your own behavior, to suffer as well. Reflect upon such 
experiences, upon your current vulnerability, and with each in-breath arouse the yearning that you may be free of this mental affliction and free of blatant suffering. You may practice this in the Donglen mode of visualizing the orb of light at your heart and dissolving the darkness of anger and of suffering into the heart if you find this helpful. Direct your attention outwards to other sentient beings. It may be whole communities or groups of sentient beings in which anger is dominant and violent or harmful behavior results. And rather than looking upon such individuals or groups with contempt or disdain, look upon them with the eyes and the heart of compassion. With each in-breath arouse a yearning that they may be free like ourselves.
and direct your attention back on your own experience, drawing from your own memory of occasions when your mind has been seized by attachment or craving, distorting your perception of reality and giving rise to behavior that results in suffering, anxiety and discord for yourself and others. Wherever there is attachment, suffering will follow. It's only a matter of time. And arouse the yearning to be free, both of the suffering as well as the underlying attachment and craving.
then direct your attention outwards to individuals, to communities, or simply the world of sentient beings. So many of us driven so much of the time in our pursuit of happiness. Instead of seeking genuine happiness, focusing single-pointedly on hedonic pleasure with craving, with attachment, with all the repercussions, all the suffering that comes with that. All the damage to the environment, to relations. It goes on and on, this self-perpetuating cycle. Attend closely with each in-breath, arouse the yearning of compassion. May you be free of attachment and its resultant suffering.
And of course, the craving and the attachment will diminish only if we find somewhere else to direct our attention, some other source of well-being, of happiness that we incessantly seek for. Arouse this compassionate yearning that we may be free of such attachment and craving and turn our striving, our vision, our efforts to the cultivation of the true causes of happiness, the inexhaustible source of happiness. Finally, turn, turn your, your awareness inwards once again, raising the question of why we suffer mentally at all. And is it not, in fact, because we so closely hold onto and identify with our emotions, our thoughts, our memories, grasping onto them, cognitively fusing with them, and thereby making ourselves vulnerable, and likewise for the body, by closely holding on to grasping this body as I, as mine, we make ourselves utterly vulnerable to all manner of physical pain. Is it necessary? Consider the freedom you have in a wonderfully lucid dream in which you know with certainty that nothing that occurs in the dream can distress your mind. And because you know your body is simply an apparition that you do not reify or grasp onto as mine, there is no physical pain either. You are indeed free because you've come to know the reality of that dream state for what it is. Imagine being lucid in the waking state, releasing all grasping and all reification. And gaining freedom, freedom from both mental and physical pain. Arouse the yearning of freedom. 
with each in-breath, imagine becoming free. Turn your attention outwards. With each in-breath, arouse this yearning for all sentient beings, that we may each one be free of the ignorance and delusion that lies at the root of all suffering. Then release all appearances and aspirations, and for a moment let your awareness come to rest in its own place, knowing itself.
Let's bring the session to a close. A very quick point uh, about settling the body in its natural state, right back to basic basics. And that is the overall themes that I've emphasized, I think you don't need any reminding of. But one element that um, you might want to pay special attention to, just a few people here, might, might be quite helpful. And that is the this vertical axis here of the, of the torso. You already know that the spine should be straight, the sternum slightly lifted so the abdomen can expand freely when you breathe in. All this is good. But there's another point as well, and that is in the, the head, the top, of the, the top of the pyramid here. In the Theravada tradition, as, as I was taught, you keep your, you really, you're sitting at attention, and your, he, your face is just going straight forward. So there's no incline at all. You're just straight. So the natural curvature of the neck, you're not trying to get a stiff neck, but you really are sitting quite straight and your eyes may be cast downwards, it's very common, but it's really very erect. I've seen, I've seen uh, photos of very, very formidable uh, Theravada monks, meditators, and, you'll, and they're just, they're sitting, you know, ramrod straight. They're not uptight, they're not stiff, but very straight. Now, in the Tibetan tradition, it's often commented that the head can be slightly inclined, just a little bit, that's fine. But what you don't want to do is having the head not forward like this, or let alone the shoulders arching in, because this is just going to create strain in the back of the neck, tension, and so forth. So at most, just a slight incline, but don't let it start dipping down, because that will not be helpful. Okay? So <coughs> that was on a very prosaic point. And a, a footnote, I think I can keep quite short, but I think it might be helpful with respect to the very long response to Noah's question yesterday. Come back to the analogy. I think it's really not a bad analogy at all. Imagine that I were, in fact, much stronger, bigger and much stronger than, than Noah, which, of course, I'm not. But, but it was, I was just absolutely adamant that he must raise his right arm. So obviously this is a silly example, but I think it will be okay, sufficient. And you recall yesterday I simply asked, would you raise? Well, imagine that I don't believe in that kind of stuff. I don't believe in talking. I just believe in brute force. And I'm much bigger than him. So I just walk up to him and I just wrench his arm up and I do it again. And then after a while, he starts to develop some resistance to it. And so he dodges me. And then I just do it harder. And after a while, I give him a, a, sprain, a sprained elbow. And then I sprain his wrist. And he's developing more resistance. And then I just smack him, you know, <laughs> to try to really subdue him. And then I, you know, then I dislocate his jaw. And then he develops resistance to that. And I call somebody in who's a martial arts expert. And he really beats into the shape to make sure that arm comes up. So the arm is, I mean, as long as, you know, his resistance isn't stronger than the people I can launch into him to get his arm to come up, the arm still comes up. But what we're seeing here is a lot of side effects. 
Whereas if I continue, and if you can see that there's a real point to this, you know, that it's not just a stupid thing like raising your arm, then every time I suggest it, then you can raise your arm. And if I should tell you it'll be really helpful to raise your arm, or we should really find a better example, but I'm just going to stick there because you all know what I'm saying. Then you'll just do it whenever, you know, whenever it seems appropriate. Raise your arm. And there's no side effects at all. Zero. And so it's an interesting point that for so many of the, of the pharmaceutical drugs on the market, especially those for the, for the psychopharmaceutical, there's some pretty heavy-duty side effects. Because it's coming in with brute force. It's just coming into the brain and muscling the brain to do something that we're sure is right on the right track because, after all, the brain is where the underlying mechanisms are. The problem is you have to keep on going to those underlying mechanisms again and again every day, maybe the rest of your life, which implies they're not underlying mechanisms at all. Whereas if you can, with skillful therapy, wise and skillful therapy, that's dealing with information to information, meaning to meaning, hardly any, if any at all, detrimental side effects. A good therapist, you don't expect the person to develop spasms and rashes and don't take this therapy if you ever want to get pregnant. <laughs> when have you ever heard that one, <laughs> you know? But there's a lot of drugs out there, don't take this. If you ever even think about getting pregnant, don't take this drug. Where's the therapy where they have to take, say that? And so for, both for talk therapy or psychotherapy, no significant side effects. It's working meaning to meaning. Information flow, that's where the underlying mechanisms are because the information is more fundamental than brain correlates. So I think that's significant. Really significant, and also in the terms of the tremendous resistance from the materialistic community to the, even calling it the placebo effect is such a hilarious joke. Um, and, the, and I've read articles where they speak of the power of the placebo. Boy, it's amazing, the power of the placebo. Why don't they call it the power of sugar or the power of salt? Because that's what the placebo was made out of, you know. It's just, it's just weird, the contortions they'll wrap themselves into to avoid acknowledging the fact that the mind has an extraordinary ability to heal itself. It's just amazing. I find it stunning, right? So, one of the resistances was, oh, the placebo effect, it doesn't last. It's just a little spike. Well, that was one more domino that fell. The placebo effect can last. It can last a long, long time. Whereas drugs tend to last 24, 24 hours. So, that's just a footnote to that point. That I think there's a lot of empirical evidence showing brain is not primary. Information is primary. And here's one more piece of it. The side effects from all the drugs, where's the side effect from the placebo effect, where's the side effect from wise talk therapy? So, we move into much deeper waters, but I'm going to be much more concise since we had all of yesterday to discuss this. And this was a very interesting question from Angela, as I recall. Yep, there it is. And so yesterday, towards this is the day before, towards the end of the question and answer session, I was speaking briefly about information. So she did this independently of... Uh, of Noah. I'm very curious about, but now we're, it's, we're approaching it differently, and I think I can give, in fact, a sh much shorter answer this time. I'm very curious uh, to know, but know virtually nothing about the question, where it is stored and how we access it. Well, the short answer is, in, in Buddhism, no information is intrinsically stored in the brain. Uh, it's stored in the brain in the same way that we say uh, information is stored in the computer, but that's only because there is a conscious being that is using the computer. But the brain doesn't generate consciousness. And so we can speak loosely, conventionally, there's information in the brain because there's a consciousness that's using that brain. But that's just a manner of speaking. If we speak more, frankly, realistically, information is stored in the stream of consciousness. It's stored in the configuration of this 
flow, this triadic flow of the substrate consciousness that carries through life as well as beyond life, the, the, the corresponding flow of the substrate, which is the space, and the corresponding flow of this prana, which is physical but not material, it's not composed of atoms, and that prana gets configured by experiences, by memories, by predilections, by abilities, talents, and so forth, and that's where it's really stored. As long as we're operating out of the coarse mind, which is normally what we're doing all the time, then we can access in that information only by way of the brain. Damage the brain, we can no longer access the information. The brain may become diseased, or with Alzheimer's disease, or senility, or simply brain damage, in which case, once again, we can't access it. But that's because we're operating out of the coarse mind. Right? So, Fundamentally, and this is why these characteristics, karma, memories, predilections, and so forth carry over from lifetime to lifetime, was what remains behind is a dead brain, which is chemicals and electricity. The electricity evaporating off, <laughs> or you know, dissipating, and the chemicals turning into more mm, smelly chemicals. But, there, but there's no information there that's kind of dissipating into the dirt, or goes up in smoke, because there was never, never, never really any information there in the first place. It was just a manner of speaking. Okay? Totally conventional. But the question goes on. I've also been wondering for quite some time about how highly realized beings are receiving teachings. I'm thinking about Dujum Lingba, or, the, or uh, let's say, Denzin Wangyaramache, who says that he has received teachings in dreams. Are they, talk, are they tapping into the form realm? I would say probably not. Or is it even the formless realm? Probably not. They are accessing... Uh, Dujun Lingwa's source is said to be prim the primordial Buddha. Um, it could be. When I say probably not, it really depends on their level of realization. And that is, if a yogi has a jeev shamata, and thereby gained access, crossed the threshold into, not completely moved into, but crossed the threshold, like one foot crossing the, crossing the threshold of a door or into a house, then, yes, you have access. You have some access to knowledge that is in the form realm, and that is a general domain. It's not your own form realm. It's your own substrate consciousness gaining access to something that is much, well, it's universal. It's, it's very, very large. It's communal, it's collective, right? So you could indeed gain access to knowledge in the form realm, uh, especially if you achieve the full, the full jhana, you know, where your mind really rests in. Karasa zukam na neba, they say it. Zukam na neba, I think it is something very close to, close to that, but your, your mind dwells in it. But even apart from that, by resting in the substrate consciousness, and that's your own individual substrate consciousness, now you have potential access to knowledge you have from past lives. And so Plato, who, who accepted pretty, every, pretty much everything I'm saying here, including the bardo, he had a very interesting and very accurate account of the bardo, and as far as I know, he knew nothing about Buddhism, but quite interesting, direct. I think it was in Timaeus, I believe it was in Timaeus, but Plato described uh, the whole role of attachment, of craving, the wish to be re-embodied, the bardo as preceding your next reincarnation, and, you know, so a full embrace of reincarnation. He states that uh, much of what we consider to be learning, knowledge, acquiring new knowledge, is in fact a, a blowing off of the dust of knowledge we had in past lives. And this we see embodied in the training of tukus where a training that would normally take maybe 12 years, they get in five. That would take 25 years, they get in 12. They just get this advanced placement training because it's assumed that they're just brushing off the dust of knowledge they have from past lives. And they should get it, they should be able to retrieve it much more quickly. 
And you find these, these kind of, I mean, the story of Jesus, the child prodigy speaking to the wise men in the temple and, you know, asking these incredibly precocious questions and so forth. Jesus, I think, would be safe to say he's a tuku, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so many others where they just, they're just showing this native brilliance even to the deepest teachings of Vajrayana or Dzogchen and so forth, even as young children. So all they need to do is a little bit of sweeping off, and then they're regaining their knowledge. The Dalai Lama was doing the same thing as a child, asking very deep questions, and so indicating that you know, they found the right person. So that's actually incorporated into educational systems. It doesn't always work. Not everyone who's identified as Tuku winds up radiantly glorious as a Tuku, but it seems it works well enough that the institution is sustained. So that's one, one aspect. That's on the more relative plane. When we come to people like Dujum Lingba or Tsongkhapa, Padmasambhava, Longjian Rapjamba, and so forth, uh, and there are so many others, and I'll just speak of the, of the Buddhist tradition, um, their minds really are inconceivable. That's the first thing, is that for us, if we're on a lower level of realization or understanding, there's just no way we're going to get our mind to reach up to theirs, wrap our, our minds around it, and say, oh, now I've got it. Yeah, it's perfectly clear. Right? In the case of Dujum Lingba, the assertion here that is, is that this text, and it's one of a number of texts that he wrote down, the Vajra Essence, or in Tibetan, Neluranjum, is that this occurred, and he describes right in the preface of the text exactly how this transmission occurred. He'd been practicing sage regeneration, and then he had a pure, and just spontaneously there arose a pure vision of Samantabhadra, primordial Buddha, manifesting in one of the various manifestations of Padmasambhava, surrounded by a circle of Bodhisattva disciples, all of this apparitional, in a pure vision, and then there proceeded a, a series of dialogues as one Bodhisattva would stand, stand up after another and then address questions to the Buddha. And then there would occur, and then he would respond, and sometimes it would be almost like a Socratic debate or dialogue where the Bodhisattva would say, but that doesn't really make sense to me, or how could this be, you know? And then, but that's not my, you know, and so it wasn't just, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was sometimes really much more of a dialogue the dialogue went on for 400 pages as one after another raised the questions from the very beginning of the practice, from, preliminary state, from the preliminary practices and shamatha, and then on right on through to the culminating stages of Dzogchen and different ways of achieving rainbow body. So where's the source? Well, it's said that 13 of Dujun Lingba's disciples achieved rainbow body in that lifetime, and a thousand gained direct realization of Rikpa it would be probably a pretty safe bet to assume that he was also awake. In which case, his mind really wasn't dual, was not significantly other than the mind of Samadabhadra. But this was a display. Now, now what is said, it's called a gongder, a mind dharma, a mind treasure, and that is he simply rested in his own samadhi, and this treasure was revealed. So if one wanted to speak of an I-thou relationship between Dujum Lingba and Samadabhadra, one could say this was revealed from the mind of Samadabhadra, by way of the mind of Padmasambhava, to the mind of Dujum Lingba, and that was the display. Because Dujum Lingba wasn't in the vision, he was the recipient of it. All right? But again, when one is dealing with that level of realization, uh, then it really is fundamentally inconceivable. But we try. That's why he described this is how it happened. Right? It wasn't simply, I had this great library, and I went into it, and I did a lot of research, and then I wrote this, and this is my best shot. I hope it helps. You know, a lot of texts are written that way. They're scholarly tomes. Um, Tsongkhapa has both. Tsongkhapa was this prodigious scholar, like Sakyamandita and others, Longchamrachamba and others, and just ex un almost unbelievable erudition. 
And so he quotes this text and that, and you just see, wow, what an encyclopedic mind that he puts this all together, and not simply a compilation, but adds his own brilliance to it. On the one hand, on the other hand, Padma, uh, Tsongkhapa by himself had, after he gained realization of emptiness, direct vision of, of with the Manjushri, the embodiment of enlightened wisdom, and when he had problems that he couldn't quite figure out in terms of his reading and his meditations and so forth, he would simply call on Padma, uh, he would call on Manjushri, and he'd have a question and answer session. So you poor folks, you only get me 15 minutes a week, you know. <laughs> but Tsongkhapa, he could just, Manjushri, I have a couple of questions, and then, what's up, dude? <laughs> I'm sure it was a very friendly relationship, you know, so probably they were on easy, very friendly terms with each other. So it happens both ways. Um, but when we deal with this level, this is not something that I would try to, I, would try, even, I wouldn't even make a gesture of trying to say, well, what I've just said is true, and here's how we put this to the empirical test. Forget it. Nor could I say, oh, here's my logical reasoning. This will show you quite clearly that Jujum Lingba was having a direct mind-to-mind transmission from Samadhavadra. No way. I can't give any reasonings for that. So I would say, this is in the realm of, the deepest realm of religion. And so I back up just a little bit. I would say this whole realm of shamatha and the four immeasurables and so much, other, so much else, I would say this is a truly empirical science of the mind, right down to the ground from which the mind emerges on this relative plane from the substrate. That's a full-scale, 360-degree, three-dimensional, empirical science of the mind, where, like all the other natural sciences, except for modern mind sciences, the primary means of investigation is observing the phenomenon you're seeking to understand. What we have in psychology and neuroscience departments is a, an empirical science of behavior, which is correlated with an inferential science of the mind, and we have an empirical science of the brain correlated with an inferential science of the mind. But I would say right now there's hardly any of an empirical science of the mind in modern academia. Somewhat more in clinical psychology, where the first person is taken more seriously, introspection has a stronger role, but it has so little role in cognitive psychology, cognitive neuroscience. It's so marginal, and it's left to amateurs. I mean, these are the people you put into your MRI. These are the people on whose head you put the EEG and you ask them about their experiences. But that's not professional. The professional is all on the outside. Whereas William James and the whole Buddhist tradition and other contemplative traditions, this is a truly empirical science of the mind, which can be augmented and informed by the wonderful insights from modern science. But this is the empirical science of the mind because we're learning about the mind through direct, precise, meticulous, and replicable observation. When we go into questions like, what is the nature of reality? Is there really a self here? What is the relationship between subject and object? Do phenomena ultimately exist by their own inherent nature? These type of questions. Whereas the pre- preceding one is, is called It is developing the kind of knowledge of knowing the range of phenomena, phenomenology, phenomenological knowledge of the mind, of planets, stars, gravity, and so forth, but there's also jitawa kembeyeshe, and this is cultivating the knowledge of the nature of phenomena, how they exist, right? This is in really in the realm of philosophy, because the questions are philosophical. But unlike so much of Western philosophy, and I think it's very tragic, Western philosophy, there are many brilliant philosophers for whom I have tremendous respect, point to me, show, show me the one who had his brilliant ideas and said, and here's how we put it to the test of experience, and you can confirm it yourself and we'll have consensual knowledge. There is philosophy in Buddhism, and as we would have 
this whole realm of shamatha four measurables is an empirical science of the mind, when we're asking these questions like of Madhyamaka philosophy and so forth, I would say this is empirical philosophy. It is philosophy, but it doesn't end in just thinking more in interesting and brilliant thoughts. It ends in transcending thought and going back to experience to a non-conceptual realization of the phenomenon in question, of emptiness, of suffering, of impermanence, of non-self, non-conceptual, which means you've transcended philosophy. You've transcended the conceptual mind. And the use of the conceptual mind philosophically was to enable you to transcend it. And that's what Western philosophy doesn't do. I don't know, I think it has on occasion in ancient history, but not recently. And then we have this kind of question. I said this would be short, you, you know, but by now you know what short means. <laughs> not very. We enter into this realm of where did Dujum Lingba get this knowledge? Well, that's not an empirical science for us. How do we know? It's not empirical philosophy. What kind of, what kind of syllogism shall I throw, throw at that and get greater clarity? I would say this is empirical religion. So we have empirical science, empirical philosophy, and then empirical religion in the most majestic sense of the term. Religion as a, a joining, a reunion, a coming together, like a, as a word yoga, huge, actually similar cognates. So religion and yoga, coming back, the union with your true identity, the deepest reality, your own primordial consciousness, your own Buddha nature. And so, once again, I would say this is deepest religion. We find it in Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and so forth. But this is a religious issue. And that means this is time to bow the head. And that is, it's not to say that it's just, oh, bow your head, because in, in, in the face of authority, oh gosh, okay, whatever you say, boss. It's not that. It's not blind faith. It's saying now you're going into the inner sanctum, the deepest of the deep. And this will not be empirical. This will not be empirical for you or for me until we ourselves have descended or ascended, any, any metaphor you like, but until we penetrated through to that depth ourselves. And once you've be, achieved realization comparable to that of Dujum Lingba, then you'll know experientially how he got his knowledge. And it will be empirical for you. But that will mean you become a profoundly religious person. In the best sense of the term. And I say that we all know the way that religion has been misused so many times. But so is science, and so is technology, and so is language, and so is everything else. But religion at its most sublime, I think, taps into the deepest questions that human beings have ever raised and for which human beings have had direct knowledge. Okay? That's so. So, uh, now that we've dealt with really deep issues, let's just go really light and actually this really short. But I raised the, the, the opening line of uh, Sounds of Silence, I think written by Paul Simon and beautifully, melodiously sung by Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, it does, of course, begin with, Hello, hello darkness, my old friend. I think uh, Anisipal had exactly right the second line, I've come to talk with you again. I think that's exactly what you said. So count on the nun to know the lyrics of good 1960s songs. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole song, but I'm going to leave it here for anybody who's curious, but I'm going to read just the first, the first verse. It's quite lovely. Hello, darkness, my old... And I won't sing it, because I, I don't want to strain your ears and ruin it for you. Just remember... I mean, who could ever render that song better than Simon and Garfunkel? To my mind, this is obviously a big opinion, but boy, they did a beautiful job. Hello, darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Anybody who wants more, I'll leave it here.
This is a, it's, it's a, pr a private question. I will leave it, to, uh, uh, it's a personal question. I'll leave it anonymous, but it's no big deal. Uh, but the question is this, it's a personal question, but I think it's relevant to other people. What books would you recommend to give a, it looks to me like 10, 10 year old boy to help introduce meditation and Dharma into his way of life? It's a really good question. Snow Lion Publications. I don't mean to push any one publishing firm. There are several really good ones. Wisdom, Snow Lion, Buddhist Publication Society, Snow Lion, um, Shambhala, and so forth. But I happen to know that Snow Lion Publications, in their quarterly, which is free, has a whole, a whole section just for children's, uh, children of, you know, very small children, older children, Dharma books, and some of them are very, very good. So I think it's an excellent question. No title springs to mind. But overall, Snow Lion is very discerning about, they not only sell their own books, which tend to be very, very good, but they also market books from other publishers that they screen to make sure they're really good quality. And then they, they market those also through their quarterly. So that's a really a lovely question. And I know if I wanted an answer right now, what I would do is I'd go onto the Snow Lion website, Snow Lion, Snow Lion Publications website, and just check out what books do they have specifically for young people. That's where I would go. And, um, yeah, since I don't know that off the top of my head, but that's what I would do. There are some really good books out there. So, that's my answer for right now. So, there's that. Yeah, here's actually quite a short one from Malcolm, to which really quite a short answer can be given. Instructions for settling the mind in its natural state Saturday, that, that is this morning. Did you say that attending to the space of the mind is, in fact, attending to knowing and substrate consciousness. If I did, then I was delirious at that point, and I do not take responsibility for my words. <laughs> but no, as far as I know, I didn't say that. Uh, what I, I know what I wanted to say, and, I, and, and the record will show either that I did or didn't, uh, is that when we're attending to the space of the mind, I would say that the, the Pali and the Sanskrit reference of that space of the mind is this dharmadhatu, the domain of purely mental events. So that is what we are attending to right now that domain and whatever mental events arise therein. What I believe I said this morning is, when the nature of that domain of experience is unveiled, that is, when the layers of grasping, conceptualization, superimposition, and so forth, when we unveil it by truly settling the mind in its natural state, right, and the clouds disband, the projections of, gras of grasping dissipate, that which we in initially perceived as this domain of mental events, or dharmadhatu, unveils itself, it shows its true face as, its relative true face as, substrate, space of the mind. By attending to the substrate, that does not necessarily give you, you know, it, it does not, it's not the same as uh, attending to knowing, nor is it the same as realizing substrate consciousness. Because after all, substrate and substrate consciousness are not synonymous. Having said that, when you are resting in the substrate consciousness, you've achieved shamatha and you're resting, your mind has dissolved into the substrate consciousness, what do you know? That is, what is appearing and what you apprehend as you're simply resting there? The substrate. That's what's appearing, that's what you know, right? But your knowing of it, that is, the knower is the substrate consciousness, the known is the substrate, it is not, since conceptualization had gone so dormant, it is really a very non-dual experience, a non-bifurcated experience of just luminous cognizant space. At the same time, we won't go so far as to say the space is simply equivalent to substrate. The substrate is simply equivalent to substrate consciousness. One interesting point on this that I've not mentioned before, and that is there was one statement in the Vajra Essence that 
for me, for some years, was just an anomaly. I look back, did I translate it correctly? This doesn't quite make sense to me. And yep, they can't translate it any other way. Okay, then I won't translate it in a way that make, makes more sense for me. I'll leave it. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's what it says, and I have to bite the bullet and say, I don't quite get it. And I think just recently, I, I think I've gotten it. And the phrase is this, that the substrate consciousness emerges from the substrate. But how could that be? What does that mean? And here's my take on it. So that's what it says. And it's right there in the shamatha section, so it has to be there in the first 30 pages or so of the text. Here's my sense of it. And that is when you become anesthetic. Let's say you receive a general anesthetic. You're knocked out. Bam. And when you come to again, you have no idea whether you're rumpled stilt skin and you're waking up 100 years later, whether you're out for five minutes. That was just a black hole in your experience. There was nothing there at all. It was just nothing. And now you wake up again. Very deep sleep when we're extremely tired can be something comparable, although not hit with such a sledgehammer, because this again is, this, the anesthetic is like wrestling Noah to the floor and pinning him into the ground. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a chemical bombardment of the brain. You will be knocked out, you know. Whereas if you fall asleep lucidly, just the opposite. And so in those cases, and in the case of dying non-lucidly, it's called a blackout. It's a blackout, which means you lose consciousness. Well, that could, well, then we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lose consciousness? What about the conservation of consciousness? Well, you don't lose consciousness entirely. I would say not a bad metaphor is uh, many of us still have gas stoves where, of course, you have a pilot light. And so you turn off the stove, and then you see, oh, good, it's off. Everything's fine. And you walk away and do whatever you want. But, of course, it didn't go down to absolute zero. There's a pilot light on. And you don't see it. Usually it's down beneath the plate and so forth. But there is a pilot light. Otherwise, when you try to turn it on again, you can go click, click, click until, you know, it won't happen. And so, but in terms of anything manifest, the flame that you see on the top of the burner, it's not there. It, it vanished. So my sense of it is that when we go into deep sleep, when we receive general anesthetic, when we become comatose, or when we die non-lucidly, the flame of consciousness withdraws into the pilot light. And for all practical purposes, it's not there. It's slipped into, it's been veiled by the substrate. It's slipped into the substrate. You don't know you're conscious. Nobody else knows you're conscious. You're unconscious. But not absolutely. It's been veiled. And I think one more metaphor might not be too bad is if we think of consciousness as like a sword. When we fall into those non, really non-conscious states, but not absolutely non-conscious, otherwise nothing could ever arouse us from it. Right? It's like having a sword and putting it into its scabbard, into its container, carrier, sheath. Thank you, sheath. And so when it's in the sheath, they say, oh, no more sword. All you have is a blunt sword. No more sword. It, it vanished. Well, okay. But so the consciousness slips into the sheath of the substrate. And then it comes out again. When you wake up, when the anesthetic wears off, or when your little binge of being dead is finished. <laughs> And you slip into the, into the clear light of death, and then on you are into the bardo. That's my sense of it. Okay? So, yeah. So, yeah. So I think that does that one. Here's another short one. Uh, this is from Elizabeth. Uh, I've mentioned the Dzogchen view and way of life. Could you say more about this, please? Uh, yeah, but in another retreat. 
It's, it's so large. It's so large. And even, even a weekend is a really short time. And so I think not here. If we can keep focused on what Padmasambhava said to focus on. He said before getting the pointing out instructions, and that's really the tip of the sword for receiving you know, the Dzogchen teachings. I mean, if you have a really accomplished master like Dingo Kensen Rinpoche, Dujun Rinpoche, um, and others, Tuko Orgen Rinpoche, and really accomplished masters, from those you can get pointing out instructors. I think other people go through the motions of giving it. I've heard of one teacher, I'll leave it, Sovi, you would have no way of checking, but one, one teacher, Buddhist teacher, thought he was up to giving pointing out instructions. So he gave it to his students. And one of his students came back to him afterwards. This one I know, I know it from his lips. And he, he went back to his teacher and said, you gave point and answer, I didn't get anything. I got nothing. I mean, he said the words, the words are really not that hard. I can memorize them. I can be a little parrot and go like, ah, ah, ah. I'll give you point out instructions, like a parrot can. Um, and the student came back to the teacher and said, you said you gave point out instructions, but nothing was pointed out to me. I didn't get anything at all. And the teacher said, yes, you did. And so he, he went away, just, you know, yes, you did. And then he went away and he came back some months later and he said, I didn't really get anything at all. Yes, you did. Comes back six months later. You know, I didn't really get anything at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a lot easier to pretend to give pointing out instructions. It's a lot, a lot easier to have the hubris of thinking I've gained realization of Rikpa, then I'll just point it out to you, than actually doing it. So that's where the, but what does Padmasambhava say about receiving and pointing out instructions is first settle your mind in this natural state and don't be introduced to Dzogchen too soon. Otherwise, what can and does happen, not necessarily, but certainly can, and Padmasambhava says this can really, this can really happen, is if you, get, if you get introduced to Dzogchen teachings, the view, the meditation, the way of life, the whole shebang, and the mind that is receiving this is your ordinary dysfunctional mind that flip-flops like a fish on, on sand between laxity and excitation, laxity and excitation. And you've just stuffed that fish's gills with Dzogchen view, meditation, and way of life while it's flip-flopping on the sand. He said, then the whole Dzogchen thing just becomes an object of the intellect. And then you may have the conceit of thinking you really know Dzogchen. And then all your Dzogchen is in your mouth. It's just, you know, katsam, just in your mouth. You just give lip service to it, but now you think you know Dzogchen, and you might even give... <laughs> I'm pointing out instructions to other people. <laughs> so all in good time, all in good time. I'm not completely rigid about this, um, but that, those are the teachings of the Padmasambhava. Now my own teachers, they have, and this is, his whole name is Dalai Lama, it's, uh, it's Kempojimi Pinso, it's Gyatru Rinpoche, it's other teachers, the, the Kempo brothers, everybody calls them. I've received Zokin teaching from a number of people. And they will, will give these teachings to you know, large groups of people, knowing full well that virtually no one or no one has achieved shamatha. They will do that for planting seeds. For planting seeds. And I do, I, I embrace that. I've also given, I've been authorized to teach Zokin, I've given Zokin teachings. Um, but here I think if we can just focus on the task at hand, it'll be the best use of our time. So all in good time, all in good time. And hopefully you'll find somebody much more qualified than I to give you those teachings. So here's a long one. Here's a short one. Let's do the short one first. It's a private question, yeah. And the question is, I'll keep it anonymous, happy to do so. And, I, and I, I, I'm much more meticulous about this. I won't let my tongue slip. 
Are bindos supposed to be in the substrate? What am I doing wrong? Um, bindus. Bindus. The word bindu is used in different ways. Um, bindus as in Vajrayana. Uh, the indestructible bindu at the heart. Red bindus, white bindus, and so the word is used in different ways. Um, it also comes up in advanced teachings on, in Dzogchen, specifically in the Tutgel teachings, the direct crossing over teachings. And these refer, I can say this much, that the, the bindus, the kind of the first sign of the bindus, are what very casually and almost trivially are called floaters. In, and they're very well known in the medical profession by, by eye doctors and so forth. And that is, if you gaze into the blue sky, like on a clear, clear day, and you get, get on, a, on a bright sunny day, and gaze into the, blue, into the blueness of the sky, you'll probably see these little orbs, little floating, translucent little orbs, like little, they look like fish eggs, like little fish eggs or whatever. And they're called floaters. And it's completely normal. Um, everybody knows about them. There's no deep explanation for them. It's kind of like just one of those things. Um, but those in Dzogchen practice are sometimes called bindus. And there's a whole practice that engages with those and then continues on to tremendous depth. Uh, so those two are called bindus. Uh, in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, of course, or even an awareness of awareness, really any time your eyes are open, and actually bindus can actually can arise when your eyes are closed as well, but they tend to arise more vividly with the eyes open, the bindus may arise, little orbs, if this is what the question is about, and if this answer isn't satisfactory, the person who asked it can come to me later, uh, privately. Um, but if little bindus arise, little orbs, these little translucent little orbs arise in your field of vision while you're settling the mind in its natural state, simply ignore them because they're arising in your visual field and this is not, that's not the domain. Okay? So just keep on focusing the space of the mind and all the more so for awareness of awareness. You're not interested in any appearances to the mind and therefore just let them be. Okay? So are they in the substrate? Are they in the substrate? Well, let's say they're manifesting, they're, yeah, they are in the substrate because all appearances, for us sentient beings, all appearances are manifesting in the substrate, including, including the, the red color of Sanjay's robes. Okay? Where is, where is that red color appearing? Well, not in physical space, because it's not in the molecules, not in the, not in the photons, not in my brain. So the, the red color that I perceive is appearing in the substrate, therefore the bindus are also. Yeah. But they're no big deal. They're not a matter of concern. They're not of any special interest in this practice of shamatha. Okay? So if there's any further question, that person can follow up with me in private. And now I'll read most of this, since it's long, I'll read most of it just quietly. I've read through it once quick, quickly. I'll do it again and tease out the question. Okay? The experience here is falling asleep, especially, especially in a context of doing a lot of intensive meditation. And so, if I fall, my, my mind wakes up, but my body doesn't. And that is, you fall asleep. Okay? So imagine, well, like right now, in this pretty intensive meditative context. Uh, they usually occur at, just, after, at, just after I fall asleep, often when I have been doing intensive meditation, and if I fall to sleep in the supine position. My mind wakes up, but my body doesn't. Okay? So there you are. The body is 
there it is, it's still asleep. It feels like I can't breathe. And it feels as if malevolent spirits are holding me down with a great weight or pressure. I used to get very frightened and struggle for both my breath, uh, uh, for both my breath and to, fi- to, uh, to struggle for, to breathe and to fight off the dark spirits, dark in, in uh, quotation marks. If I've ever been able to look at the spirits, they are or were shadowy or faceless. Over the, over the years, I've learned to simply to relax and surrender, and it seems to um, to resolve itself. Um, I don't know the spirits. I, w- I would suspect the so-called dark spirits and so forth are simply nyam. I, I mean, it's conceivable. I, I, I don't discount the existence of spirits. Uh, every, every society on the planet accepts them, except for scientific materialism. So you can imagine where my sympathies are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there we are. No commentary needed. Um, I mean, so many people have witnessed them, seen them actually, that again, there we are. Um, but one can easily go overboard on that. Dujum Lingba is quite interesting. Dujum Lingba, in his, in his treatment of spirits, has quite a deconstructionist attitude towards them, saying these are really apparitions of your own mind. So it's really quite, even though this, this text, Vajra Essen, came out in about 1868 or so, it has a real contemporary zing to it. And he almost, he's, almost, he's certainly speaking with irony, if not, not out, flat out ridicule. For Tibetans who sometimes go overboard, and they've been doing it for centuries, going overboard of trying to attribute whatever goes on to, oh, it must have been a spirit here, it must have been this, it must have been that, it must have been that. And he said, oh, give me a break. It's an apparition of your own mind. It's quite modern in that way. And so this is probably, it's not inconceivable that there might actually be spirits, but the odds are, from the Dzogchen perspective, I think overall Buddhism, these are nyam. I mean, we can dream of spirits. Why couldn't they happen when the, when, you know, in such a state? So most likely, they're simply apparitions. The fact that you've never actually been harmed by them would be also an indicator of that. The heaviness, the weight, though, how do we account for that? Um, I remember the most vivid ex- experience I had of this, the same thing. I think it's exactly the same thing was when I was dying, uh, I got about as close, I think, maybe not as close as Pam Reynolds, but without, you know, without the whole thing of, of medical procedures, I got pretty close to dying, and it, was, it lingered for a few days when I had my third case of hepatitis in India when I lived there in the early days. It was quite awful. It wasn't so painful, but uh, very debilitating. And um, about three, three nights when I thought I had about a 50-50 chance of getting through the night and waking up. In the meantime, the monks in the monastery, they weren't giving me a lot of encouragement because they were doing death pujas, you know, for me. <laughs> <laughs> so long, farewell, except for it didn't have, that, didn't have that jolly quality to it. It was like, da, 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 <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not quite ready yet. And so in any case, right in the midst of that, I remember one night, it was really quite, it was very frightening. It's exactly the same thing happened. And my interpretation of it, based upon Buddhism and Tibetan medicine was, that, and Anilan and, and uh, Mugi and others will be familiar with this, in the dying process, one of the first things to go that loses its potency is the earth element. Earth, water, fire, air, wind, you've stopped breathing, and then on you go into the white, the red, the blackout, and you're finished. But the first element, this is first-person physiology, and to my mind it makes an awful lot of sense, really good sense, in a complementary fashion to the the wonders and the great knowledge and expertise of modern biomedicine. The two are complementary. But from this first-person physiology, when you're in the dying process, then the earth element collapses, and what do you feel like? You can't move your body. It's just dead in the water. You can't move. And you may feel an oppressive weight on you. 
and there you are, you're not dead, you're, you're awake, and you cannot move your body, and it's very freaky. And so I had this sense, one night in particular, when I probably got as close to death in that particular phase, is that I think probably my, de my earth element collapsed. And I was there, and I was dying, and then, of course, it reverted and got my earth element back again. So it may be something along those, those lines. The potency of it collapses, and you just feel immense pressure, like the whole body is lead. can't move it. You, you cannot move. There's another aspect to it, too, but I don't think it's the same. In fact, I'm quite sure it's not the same. And that is now just straight modern sleep research. That when you, when you are, in fact, dreaming, so you're awake, so this is why I do think it's not relevant, but I'll mention it as a footnote. If you have fallen asleep you, and you are, in fact, dreaming, uh, then at that, on that occasion, while you're in a full-fledged full REM sleep with dreaming, the whole, the whole nine yards, the whole shebang, uh, your body's paralyzed. All the major limbs are paralyzed. Your arms, your legs, you cannot move. And that probably evolved through natural selection because if you moved around while you were sleeping, according to the dream, you'd kill yourself or you'd be injured. You'd, you probably wouldn't pass on your gene pool that effectively. And so it's really good that we get paralyzed. So if you're running, you're jumping, you're doing all kinds of weird things in the dream, your body can't do that, right? It would probably really break up a lot of marriages too. <laughs> Smacking the person in bed with you. And so, maybe something of that sort. Uh, may I go ahead and read it? If you say no, it's fine. If you say yes, it's fine. Either way. Yeah, because yeah, it doesn't say anonymous. This is from Malcolm. So, and I think it will be easier as our time runs out here just to go ahead and read it. Last night I went to, went to sleep in a lucid state, uh, thinking that I may slip into a lucid dream. And yes, I was supine. And then I, dreamt I was, then I dreamt I was sitting meditation in a group. And I, when I went to get up, there were these quite dark spirits holding me down. And I struggled against them, trying to push it or them off and could hear my body, my body yelling at them. I hope I didn't disturb the neighbors. That's why we have soundproof walls here. And they will be fixed, I understand. Nick told me they'll be fixed. So we'll actually, the soundproof walls will not be soundproof walls with paper-thin ventilation <laughs> where you can hear everything in the next room as if we had bamboo screen between us. <laughs> Apparently, it's a pro problem that can be solved, correct? That's great news. Probably good. But we have such a quiet group that I think it's really not that big a deal thus far, except for when, you know, Malcolm is screaming. <laughs> then I just surrendered and said, may you be happy, and they let me free, and I woke gasping for breath. That is just a really wise strategy. If in doubt, metta, metta bhavana. If in doubt, loving kindness practice. It's really, really wise. And it solves many, many problems. And so we had this place blessed by a, by a Brahman who came in for the more, the ancient tradition, for the, any spirits, any beings who might be dwelling here. We come in peace and just getting on good, nice terms with them. And then we had Buddhist monks come in and they blessed it Buddhist-wise. Uh, so we come into a very, you know, a very blessed environment here. A few years ago, I saw a reference to a paper in a psych journal about this experience as a type of sleep apnea. About that, I have no knowledge at all, but was unable to follow the article up. When I asked Venerable Buddha Dasa many years ago about the, uh, them, he said with a smile that I would eventually um, uh, find out, you know, sooner or later, you know, buck up, buck up, it'll happen. And then I asked the Burmese Sayadaw, about it, and he said it was an imbalance of the elements and that I was not mindful enough. If in doubt, that's a good way to <laughs> slap people into shape. You're just not mindful enough. Um, 
<laughs> you can say that until you're a Buddha. Yeah, that's just a... My, my favorite is, uh, that was your karma. Now, do you have any other, if any other question? Actually, I have, a, I have an answer. I do know the answer. Any other questions? <laughs> okay, that was no fun. <laughs> so I think it's probably this. I think it's probably the earth element. And insofar as there being apparitions, you've got two big options. You have many options. Let's say three, and then we'll take our break. And that is one, simply attend to them without distraction, without grasping. That'll be good. If in doubt, that'll be really good. Number two, really penetrate into them and see their empty nature, that they really are nothing, no matter what they are, they're nothing but apparitions arising in your substrate. So you can take the shamatha approach, you can take the vipassana approach, or you can take the four measurable approach, metta and karuna. Okay? And that's a nice, that's a nice recipe. Because none of those are violent. They're all good. No harm to anyone. Okay? So, I think that's it. Enjoy your Sunday. I hope it's a very rich and meaningful day for you as, as we take our Sabbath for just Dharma practice all day long. <laughs>